0: Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Dave. And this is The Commentary Cast, a podcast bringing you missing commentaries and first-hand insights from the filmmakers behind the streaming content you love. In this week's episode, we talk to director Aaron Schneider about his film Greyhound. Oh, and what a film it is, Dave. This is a whole lot of movie that's just being, I don't know, fired into your eyeballs through a giant cannon at the head of a battleship. I'm I'm stretching for the metaphor, but it's oh. it's a lot of movie.
1: You know your naval nomenclature very well, <laughs> so uh, you know I think there's there's all the World War Two and One buffs out there who are just going that guy. He really nails it. He must just know his stuff.
0: Yeah, I don't know much about World War One or World War Two, except it's great fodder for movies. Um, you know, it feels strange to say when like there's so much tragedy uh, that underpins these stories, but uh, yeah, they make good movies. I got to tell you that much.
1: Yeah, and everybody loves their, uh, you know, deep and gritty color grade that goes along with them, at least since uh, um, uh, Saving Private Ryan really set the bar on how to bring the grit to it.
0: Well, you know who's great in Saving Private Ryan? Tom Hanks. You know what else Tom Hanks can do? Write scripts. You know what he did? He wrote this script, Dave. Not only does he star in this movie, he also wrote the damn thing. It's not the first time that he's done it. He's written two other scripts, I'll have you know, That Thing You Do and Larry Crown. Uh, But this is the first time he's written a script that he hasn't directed. And can you imagine how hard it would be for Tom Hanks to go, here's my baby, here's a thing I love, but I don't want to direct it. He's only going to give it to a very special person. And that very special person is our guest this week, Aaron
1: Schneider. All right, well, before we get into that, we probably should do a little bit of housekeeping, Grant. You and I have cooked up an idea. Do you want to tell everyone about it?
0: Yeah, I'm at pains to do this because I'm so excited to get into this week's movie and talk to Aaron about Greyhound, which I loved. But we have an idea that you and I have cooked up, a little secret side project. Uh, We're going to be interspersing the upcoming episodes with roundtable discussions with Dave, myself, and guest filmmakers in a more Q&A style format where we answer questions from our listeners. And if you're listening, that's you. So you've got to play your part in this. You've got to get on the old internet box, the handheld kind, the desktop kind, the laptop kind, and send us an email uh, at info at the Or you can come by our Instagram pages at the commentary Cast, at is that you, Dave, at Ground any of the above, uh, and send us your questions about... Uh, The filmmaking process, how you get into the industry, uh, directing, or VFX, or whatever takes your fancy, and we'll answer your questions. Heck, go off script like I am right now. Ask us questions that have nothing to do with filmmaking. We're here for it. We're ready to answer your questions. Uh, And look, we won't answer your questions unless you ask them. So get to it.
1: And also, if you've got any feedback about how the show is going, I mean, this has been a labor of love for myself and Grant. You know, we've been just toiling away behind the behind the machine, trying to make all this happen. Um, but you know, it is a bit of a two way to me. Street. Like
0: you're looking for compliments, Dave, not no. uh, not feedback. You're like, I've been toiling away, and I want to be told I'm doing I have a good been job. At
1: the cold face, no. But we, what we want is, you know, for people to reach out and let us know. Like, is there parts of the format that they like? Is there things they want more of? Is there things they want less of? You know, like. Really, I've
0: been looking for the artillery necessary to tell Dave that he sucks and he really needs to lift his game. (laughs) And right now, it's his word versus my word. And we're doing a poll. Who sucks more? Vote now. (laughs) Info at thecommentarycast.com.
1: That's not a battle I want to be part of. But speaking of battles. (laughs) Carry forth, Dave. Tell us about the Battle of the Atlantic. (laughs) So this movie is about... When a first-time Navy commander is assigned to lead an Allied convoy during World War II, he finds himself relentlessly pursued by German U-boats as part of the longest, largest and most complex naval battle in history, the Battle of the Atlantic. Yeah, well, if
0: there's one man that can navigate the longest, largest and most complex naval battle in history, I was going to say Tom Hanks, but I'm going to say Aaron Schneider. That guy has really pulled together an incredible movie here, uh, and look, let's hear a little snippet from it. Let, let's take a listen to the trailer.
2: Air escort to Greyhound. You will now be out of range of air cover for the next five days. How many crossings does this make? This was my first. I got some. Most likely are you both. He's trying to slip under us! Fire! We have a kill. Targets disappeared, sir.
1: Here they come. What are we gonna do? We'll bring hell down from on high.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't, I, I can't really say that I want to be on one of those ships crossing the ocean with U-boats firing at me, but if I was going to be on any of those ships, I want to be in the one that Tom Hanks is commanding.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a certain amount of comfort that uh, comes from hearing uh, the dulcet tones of Mr. Hanks as he, you know, reassures you through your journey.
0: <laughs> as he shouts, brace for impact. I'm like, well, it's probably going to be all right. So long as I'm on the boat with Tom Hanks, maybe I'll survive. Um, I mean, not even coronavirus
1: could take that guy down. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank
0: thank God for that. Let's hope
1: he lives a very long and uh, uh, fruitful and productive uh, life and continues to, you know, share the movies uh, with us that he is part of creating.
0: Oh, yeah, come on. The guy's got to write some more scripts. Surely we need the story of the boat ride back from this character. You know, what an eventful journey from A to B, but what about the journey back from B to A? That's what I want to know. Um, But before we get into that, Tiny little bit of background about Aaron. Aaron Schneider, my friends, is an Academy Award winning uh, film director. He actually won the Oscar for his short film uh, before going on to direct Get Low, which was a much acclaimed feature, but very different to Greyhound in both scale and genre and pretty much every way, except that they're both incredibly confidently directed with incredible performances. Uh, so naturally I, I'm really interested to, to hear how Aaron handled such a dramatic gear shift from, from the first film to the second uh, and I tell you where you'll be able to find out that
1: in our discussion in our conversation well let's get into it then Grant uh, for those who are new to our podcast Grant and Aaron are going to be having a conversation while watching the film and if you listen for the cue to hit play you can watch along too or just listen along at your own leisure
0: I say let's do it all aboard Aaron Schneider, it is such an honor to have you on the show to talk about your incredible movie, Greyhound. Thank you so much for being here at such a late hour in your time zone too. Usually down here in Australia, I'm the one that has to suffer through being up at midnight to record, but you are taking the bullet today. Uh, So I thank you for that as well.
2: Glad to be here. I'm a night owl anyway.
0: Uh, So whereabouts are you in the
2: world at the moment? I'm back visiting family here in Springfield, Illinois, which is my home state.
0: And uh, how long ago was it that you were out on the freezing cold ocean shooting Greyhound?
2: Well, uh, I guess that's the big first surprise is that uh, we weren't out on any ocean filming Greyhound. The uh, All the water in Greyhound is digitally created. That is crazy to me.
0: And we're going to get into that and a whole bunch of other things in uh, detail as we sit back and watch this movie together. So I'm going to give everyone at home a second to queue up their... Uh, streaming service of choice although I think this one is exclusively on Apple TV plus so if you're not already subscribed dear listener get out there get yourself a membership uh, sign up and strap in because we're about to watch Greyhound with director Aaron Schneider. I'm going to hit play in three two one we are away. So a good place to start is usually at the beginning. Uh, How did you get involved with this? It's, it's written by Tom Hanks, no less stars, the man of course, as well. And I'm guessing is his baby to some extent.
2: Yeah, it was a script that came from my agent uh, and I read it and it it was an unusual read. Uh, As we'll see in the film, it's full of a lot of dialogue that doesn't connect directly to the story playing out underneath it. It's a lot of procedural and uh, technical dialogue so it was a unique read and uh but 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 about 3 or 4 pages in i sort of connected with it saw what tom was trying to do create kind of an experiential and completely authentic uh film with lots of verisimilitude uh, inside of which you could place all these tactical dilemmas and and get to, and and create a character study to some extent and um and just kind of understand this man's story through purely his actions and, and the choices he makes and the dilemmas he faces. And I just, I kind of clicked and I sent an email to my agent and I said, this is super cool. Um, I would love to pursue this. And as the story goes, the email made its way up the ranks inside my agency. And I was told that it got read to Tom, this effusive email I sent about his, his writing. And And he he said, well, let's let's meet him. Let's sit down. And I went in to meet Tom at Playtone, his company, with Gary Getzman, his partner. And we just talked for close to two or three hours. And just as, you know, people who are meeting each other for the first time and filmmaking fans. And uh, we talked about the films we loved. I asked him about cinematographers I admired because I came up as a cinematographer. And he asked me about some of the actors I worked with because he's... He has, you know, he's a fan of actors too. And we just clicked and he said, well, why don't you come back and meet my partner, Gary? And, um, you know, maybe we should go do this thing. And that's pretty much how it started.
0: That's all it took. One great meeting between you guys, not, you know, uh, an in-depth pitch for how on earth you were going to pull off something this technically complicated. That's the faith that Tom Hanks had in you from meeting one.
2: Well, yeah. But then I, I prepared a little bit when I, came in to meet gary i wanted to back up you know uh the, the nice meeting we had with and give him a sense of what i a little more detail and what i wanted to do and and who i was and and how i could bring my experiences uh to the film and my and um so i you know i put together a little pre and and um because it was quite a visual effects heavy show yeah watch my first feature get low it's a period folk tale so the the films couldn't be more different
0: except that they're both fantastic
2: well thanks but you're not wrong
0: like the the set of challenges that you face heading out to sea so to speak if only metaphorically with this one are very different to the ones you would have faced with get low so i'm interested like what does that animatic look like and is that yeah, how comprehensive could that be to tackle a movie that is almost entirely one big magic trick of kind of performance and VFX intertwined?
2: Well, that was the challenge. And the first thing I realized beyond how cool this movie could be <laughs> uh, was that uh, it was going to, you know, we soon learned that it, was, it had to be shot using visual effects. We couldn't go out on sea. And what that meant is that we were going to be using a practical destroyer, a world still in its world war two configuration down in Baton Rouge, uh, the USS kid uh, moored statically in the, in the river there and, um, and intercut that with uh, uh, the bridge of the destroyer on a motion base in a stage. And those, those two main sort of assets were going to be where the movie uh, kind of lives and gets shot. And, um, because it is a movie kind of, you know, it's a captain, you know, it's a cowboy and his horse. That's really what the movie's about. Um, But the Indians, so to speak, or, you know, everything that is going on around um, the character of Krause that Tom plays in the film is out on the water and creating tactical dilemmas and, and, and creating the, the sort of naval drama that tests this character through this sort of 48 hour trial by fire as a first time captain. And um, that meant that we were going to shoot everything on Tom's side of the story, his reaction, his observations, his interactions with his crew, but everything happening out there wouldn't exist when we shot that. It will all be created digitally. And whether that means it's a clean point of view or uh, Tom's shoulder in the foreground or a digital character out on the horizon of the ocean that pans over and marries up with the set, you know, it's, it, it it's, the, the potential is, is infinite. Um, and you begin to realize then, oh my gosh, if it's a story about a character engaging with all this virtual drama, don't I need to know what that is before I can call action? Yeah. Yeah. So st- was, was building these anim- overhead maps of the naval encounters themselves by extracting details from the novel the film was based on and um, and so that on the set I could walk in with an, a- an iPad and gather the, the guys on the bridge including Tom together over my shoulder and say okay we're about to set up LED lights for you to look at and act to and engage with um, but you first need to understand what is going on out there so that you can engage emotionally with it. Uh, So by showing them the overhead animations of what they were about to encounter navally um, and tactically, um, they they could combine the LED lights we set up, right, with their virtual understanding of what's going on out there and create a performance. So every, and that's what was so impressive about Tom for me, working with him for the first time is that, you know, uh, every actor in a film talks about how that one scene they had to pretend the green screen was a dinosaur, right? Um, and it was, you know, how do you pretend to be scared of a dinosaur that isn't there? Well, this is a whole film of Tom staring out a set window at lighting and C stands uh, with the job of engaging an audience in how he feels about what he's observing and interacting with. Um, and so it's a, it's his performance is is invented in his mind mind's eye imagination and it's uh and and that was the biggest challenge for me as a director was facilitating his ability to marry up what was happening virtually with the performance he he wanted to give
0: yeah i mean it it, it would have been an interesting challenge to put it mildly i'm sure and then an an added element to that is that tom wrote the script so on some level he knows the scenarios or has one version of the scenarios in his mind, but then you're probably having to help him get to the next stage in their evolution when it comes to the beat by beat of like, Oh, actually, but this shot is for when the boat is here. And that moment is going to come slightly later. I imagine that's in some ways it would be good. That Tom is so across the script, but then there would also be those moments of disconnect where he was envisaging it one way and you need it to be another.
2: Well, you know, this, it was a little bit, the best way to describe it is is to think of it as like a, a football movie. When you read a screenplay about a football movie, you, you talk about the hike, the dropping back, and the, 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 the offense trying to muscle through the, the front line and the receivers. There's one that's not open. There's one that's, you know, I got to find somebody who's open. And you, um, and you hit the, you know, a screenwriter hits the dramatic beats of that that are crucial for the audience that make a football game dramatic right but a director needs more than that you have to have a play and you have to decide how far out the receivers are going to go and how blocked this receiver is and and how open this guy is and and if you you know and when you're starting to design shots you, you have to know every detail of the play and you have to position the players on the field or you don't have a scene. So while Tom did write, you know, Tom very vividly portrayed the sort of dramatic beats of these naval encounters, there's no way a screenplay could have laid the chess pieces out on the table um, in, in such a way that he would implicitly know where they all are just because he wrote the screenplay. Right. And that, and so filling out that detail and making sure that that uh that kind of mental gymnastic doesn't get in his way was was you know the, the main technical challenge on a daily basis.
0: Uh it, it's interesting too that it's from the sound of it you had these aerials these top downs worked out like blocking diagrams you know for all of the placements of the different ships but did you have a storyboard of like the actual kind of camera's perspective through a sequence or in particular sequences within the film?
2: It, there was a, there's a variation of, you know, had we had the time and the budget we needed uh, or that we wanted rather, um, I would have tried to pre-visualize the whole, movie because of course production needs those kinds of pre-visualizations to determine budget and how much of visual effects you know because this was a relatively low budget movie this we shot this in 35 days wow and it's i think it nets out somewhere around 35 million dollars and um it's kind of an indie action film uh contained you know as you we will see here in the film contained and centered on the bridge of a destroyer, but still, you know, kind of complex for its budget. It is an
0: interesting contradiction, isn't it? The the claustrophobia of it, but inherently you're in the most wide open spaces that the planet has on offer.
2: Yeah. And, 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 and Tom very early on embraced that. We were talking about what kind of windows we wanted because there, there are destroyers with a more open view to the water, but we kind of loved the idea that we had both a submarine movie when we were in the pilot house and we had a, and we had a ship movie when we were on out on the bridge, right? You could go from this claustrophobia to this expansive horizon just by stepping out a door. And that contrast ended up being fun to play with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It changes the visual language of it, you know, in a way that's very refreshing. If if you had big windows, in every corner of the, the the quarters that they're in at the moment. Yeah. It would look much the same in here as it does outside. So I think that's a, a nice way to mix it up. Yeah. And adds to that feeling of being a pressure cooker. You know, it's often these scenes in here where um Tom's playing a, a chess match where he can't see what the other side's doing, you know, like he's getting uh, updates from down below saying maybe they're here, maybe they're there. And he has to decide, am I moving the queen, you know, to B5 or am I taking it to, c seven
2: yeah, and this this first scene, which is which is actually a really long sequence that represents pretty much the first act of the film. the first act of the film is the pursuit of this one target we're seeing right now uh sailing out in front of the convoy um, to to meet it before it it gets close enough to do any damage, and um you know Tom wanted a very a uh, subjective experience for the audience. He wanted everything to sort of, kind of, be understood and perceived through the eyes of this of, of Captain Krause, the character he plays. And uh, we worked really hard in this opening sequence. You always hear people <laughs> say, talk about Jaws and how the, the shark the shark was scarier when you you know when you don't even see him. And um, the challenge here. In the opening sequence, was that other than this? Ironically, this shot we're seeing right there. Um, he he closes in on and attacks this U boat, uh, and we don't see it. And so, one of the things this opening sequence is trying to do is very quickly educate you and and show you what the eyes and ears of a destroyer are in its in that its sonar uh, will begin pinging out here in a moment. And acting as ears and, um, but the, but the eyes are sort of blind, right? All there is, is open ocean out there and it becomes a game of cat and mouse, a very unique game of cat and mouse where your mouse is underwater. And unlike a, a cops and robbers scene where you can chase, you know, you, you can, you can see, you can see the cop car go around the corner and then you can cut and see the robbers, you know, and you can cut through the cops windshield, Uh, shoot out the front of the cop's windshield and see the robbers take a left, right? (laughs) And you see the cops take a left. Well, that option didn't exist with an underwater mouse. And so one of the things that we're playing with here in this sequence as they close in on it is the idea of conveying the position of this this mouse scurrying from left to right, left to right um, without seeing it. Uh, because certainly the audience isn't going to understand the bearings that are coming up to the to the bridge, so we we used um we used uh Tom's body language as he closes in in a minute here you'll start to see well, we're not quite there yet, but you'll start to see when they close in and get closer that that as he gets a report that the sub has shifted from one side of the bow to the other, his body language is moving from port to starboard along with the sub so that as as a kind of end in for the submarine itself yeah. krauss connection to his target um when he hears it's moved to the right of his bow he physically moves to the starboard window yeah and then he gets the opposite and he moves to the port window and and i and hopefully the body language stands in for the target they're chasing and the audience can somehow kind of imbibe what's going on underwater without actually seeing it.
0: Well, it is that like uncertainty, like you really put in his shoes, right? Like that is the captain's dilemma in this situation. You know, the threat is real, but you don't know where it is. So I think the choice to like not really loop us in on and to leave us in the dark makes it that much more tense and unsettling. Like, I think it's it's the facts of the situation, The no, the fact that we know that this is a real thing that happened during, you know, the Battle of the Atlantic, Uh, but also Tom's performance, making it real, you know, like you look at his face and you know, the weight of the world is on his shoulders and all of these men's lives are in his hands. And then the extra kind of secret sauce in that is the music. Like my, my biggest memory of this sort of like first part of the movie is this like really drawn out simmering to boiling kind of music cue that finally boils over. Um, when the danger is imminent and, and you know, the fisticuffs between behemoths finally come to pass. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, I, as I reflect on it now, there are so many things going on here, like the blocking of like moving Tom around between all these different spaces and things like that. I don't, I can't even begin to imagine how you would even draw a top-down floor plan for all the places that Tom's going to go within this one quote-unquote scene. Is this Is this one scene in the script? Well, like, how do you even approach shooting something like this?
2: Well, it's one scene or sequence. In with respect to the fact that once upon a time there was a bad guy, you know, twenty miles out in front of your convoy, and you got to go out and deal with it, and yeah. you got to get rid of it. Uh, that's the opening act of the film. That one kind of complete effort, um, and it's sort of meant to introduce you to the language of how things work on the destroyer um give you his point of view on the challenges of of you know locating one of these u-boats underwater uh, and sort of arming the audience with the language they need to you know kind of go along with what's to come
0: i guess what i mean is like how do you shoot a master for this scene like how like how how far do you take it from start to finish like how do you break it up when it's all continuous action and you know he could step across the threshold of a doorway mid in the middle of one line and i i assume you shot some of it on the kid and some of it on the stage um yeah i mean it's it would have been a real jigsaw puzzle to, to shoot
2: this stuff well yes uh well let me let me see if i can address that Uh, (laughs) it's a magic that's not even understood in retrospect well i can it's a cool question to ask because i've watched movies and gone how the hell do you even start with something like that right um but you know there's an answer uh if if the filmmaker can tell you so let me see if if i can come up with an answer um uh because it's not magic you know it's just a bunch of hard work and thought um I would say this: uh, those overhead maps are where I started as a filmmaker. I started up in the air over the battle uh, with an understanding of the tactical scenario that the character I'm shooting is in. And even before you zoom down to eye level and start thinking about a master or how to cover a scene, the first thing you ask yourself is: if I was just covering this, if I if I if I'm just covering this tactical dilemma uh, how would I cover it? what side of the stage line would I be on you know what are the main beats uh, like you know um, what are the, what are the dramatic moments in the tactical drama of what's going on and where would I be if I was just shooting that story and I'd be oh I'd be over here and I'd see the ship turn this way and I would you know and the sub, I can imagine the sub underwater and you sort of build a mind's eye understanding of the macro of the naval engagement, right? Then you zoom down and you go inside with that knowledge, uh, you zoom you go down into the to the set and you ask yourself, okay, I've picked a side of the state cuz I may have to jump outside and do a quick shot of the ship going by or I may have to Cut to the submarine and see it submerging. Um, you know the battles get more complicated later. This is a bad example of you know high to low, but but in general, you decide what side of the stage line you want to be on for the naval engagement. Then you go stand on that side inside the pilot house, so that anything you shoot inside the pilot house will organically fit from a filmmaking standpoint. You know technical standpoint, stage line. Yeah. Because stage line became super important because you don't have any backgrounds or orientation in any of this stuff to to help the an audience understand. So you have to be really religious about stage line. So I'd pick a line, a side of the line up top in my imaginary god's eye view and then I'd drop down inside and look at the rehearsal from that side of the naval engagement and then I'd look for the human the moments of human drama inside right. that pilot house that I need to hit. And then I, knowing that whatever I do in there is going to work with whatever I had in mind for the tactical coverage, I know that if I'm on the right side of the line and I just treat this as a scene, I'll be able to intercut it with what I have in mind wow. from the map with you know what i'm
0: saying yeah i do actually i mean like when you do reduce it to that like and then give yourself the freedom to find it on the day if you're brave enough so long as you have that to fall back on that the goodies are on this side and the baddies are on that side so to speak to get really reductive about it uh i can make it all work it's interesting to know that's where you start and it's telling too to hear you say some of the rest of it i work out when i see the rehearsal because that was part of the you know the just the problem being so large uh if you look at it as a whole, you know, Tom's moving around those spaces, the inside, outside, this corner, that corner, like so constantly until you then, you know, really want to lean into the drama of him staying stationary and scanning the horizon or something. Um, Yeah, just I can imagine if you had to break all that down as floor plans, blocking plans for Tom before the day's shooting and then not knowing if Tom's actually going to do that when you go and shoot it. And you've got all your coverage worked out. It would be too much for a director to hold in their minds unless it's all been pre-vised. And it sounds like maybe you've got the the God's eye worked out, and then you work out the drama, and you cover the drama from the right side of the line, yeah. uh, and sort of yeah, you're treating this stuff more as drama, even though uh, human drama, even though the stakes are so bombastic, and 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 it quickly vacillates between being a massive action. VFX spectacular to being a really intimate story about trust and respect between crewmates and uh, Tom's own self doubt about whether or not he's up to this task. Right, or as we're seeing on screen here now, dealing with the ramifications. You know,
2: right. And and you discover, and and it's funny because I started in television as a cinematographer, and you get to the set at seven a.m. and the pages come off the presses. And nobody, you know, there's no time to, and you get about after the the actors rehearse and you try to corral them and encourage them in a direction that'll make your life easier. And then they make their choices and then they go to the makeup trailer. And then you've got this wacky five to 10 minute conversation with the director who's been hired for that episode on how you're going to cover this scene and then you've got about thirty minutes to light before the actors come out of the trailer, and then you've got to execute the plan. Boom, 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 and that's how I came up as a cinematographer. And it teaches you to um, to think fast and think creatively, and it allows the actors to be a part of that um, process. Uh, of, of you know, sometimes you say, "Go over to that window, please. You know?
0: <laughs> that's where the light is. Come on, you're yeah. in the shadow here."
2: if you cross the room you're gonna add 10 minutes to my lighting uh problems um, yeah. and and you have your little sort of battle of of wits and desire uh, in the rehearsal and then it lands and they go to the trail and you're like okay here we go let's do this 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 and and it's it's a fun way to work um and it's necessary in television and um and without you know who would want to previs a bunch of you know, close-ups inside a Destroyer uh, and who would want to then force actors um, to then, you know, walk from this thingy to this light. And, you know, there's no room for them to work the way they're used to working. So in starting big, uh, starting up high and getting a sense of what the story is from a God's eye point of view and where I want to be to tell that story and then dropping down inside uh knowing that I, that anything I do from this side of the line will or inherently mix with my plans for what's going to come later in post, right, uh, gives you the freedom to say, do what you want. And as long as I can keep everything on the side of the line and all the eye lines marrying up with what I have in mind for the tactical dilemma, there's a degree of freedom for everybody, including the cinematographer and the actors. And it freaked out. You know, it freaked out some of, the, some of The producers, they're like, you know, and and in fact, you know, look, you you're responsible to an ad for a shot list so that he can help move the day along. So yeah. I would, I would uh, create shot lists that represented, you know, a coverage plan, um, so that you got a sense of what you had to accomplish each day. But I but I also left uh, room for us to treat the interior of this pilot house like you would one of those tv sets that i used to attack at 7 a.m in the morning every day
0: can i ask i mean we like to get technical because i think a number of our listeners are you know people in the industry or or aspire to be how how do you um light a set like this you know like are walls flying away to be able to um give you enough space to get the camera and your lights are you lighting it just with practicals is it being lit just from outside the space barring those um, warmer tungsten fixtures that we're seeing on screen now and one last question is it all one camera or is it multiple cameras sometimes
2: oh inside this pilot house there's only room for one camera there's barely room for one camera let alone right. two. but to answer your lighting question our cinematographer Shelly Johnson and I are cut from the same cloth in terms of our taste. And that's why I hired him. I, I really admired his work. And um, and we knew each other because we were both members of the American Society of Cinematographers. So we'd run in, into each other at cinematography events and whatnot. Uh, this was back before I shifted from cinematography to directing. And um, uh, we wanted a very... It, because it was a naval drama and not a, you know an Avengers movie where you can... Uh, where you can, you can have a degree of stylization in the effects in the world you're creating because the world is so big to begin with, you know, big and stylized to begin with. You, you can't, as soon as you start stylizing a World War II Tom Hanks movie, you, you know, you're into, you know, we wanted this to feel, Because it was experiential, it was about dropping people into what it was really like. We barred any sense of stylization at all, and we're heading and wanted absolute photorealism, Um, and that's reflected in the visual effects photography as well. In that, I spent a lot of time in pre-production. I'm a visual effects self-taught visual effects artist and do a lot of previs myself and. And I found a way, uh, I found a plug-in that I could port into Autodesk Maya that would float ships in a physically accurate way. Oh, wow. In a environment. And so what I was striving to do was, uh, you know, just kind of convince myself that I could recreate the feeling of open ocean photography as if I went out and shot this on the water. Yeah. If I could recreate the chaos of open ocean photography in a digital environment, I might have a shot at creating visual effects completely 100% digital footage that felt like, you know, that great footage you see on YouTube where one World War II destroyer is shooting across the water to another one and you get that sense that this is this is real, this is authentic. And so all the visual effects, you know, notwithstanding the coverage of Tom on the ship, Everything you see has that sense of, hopefully, has that sense of being out there really on the ocean shooting these kinds of shots. So the camera could never do any crazy stuff flying through windows or it couldn't betray the speed of a helicopter that would have been hovering or flying. It couldn't uh, be closer to the ship with a wide lens than would would have been safe if you were shooting it ship to ship. All these little subliminal... Yeah things that give away that, Oh, you know what, this looks real, but this shot, you could never do a shot like this. This, <laughs> you know, this is digital. We, we just threw all that out the window and the same went for the photography. Shelly, we didn't shoot green screen out our, uh, out this set. Uh, Shelly surrounded the whole set with a white psych with uh, programmable and dimmable lights and created a different time of day vibe for every section of the script. And pre programmed them as a starting point so that when we when it all came together, you would get a sense of time passage and different weather and lighting conditions.
0: Did you key yeah. the was it a Luma key on the yeah. on the white or is it you actually yes.
2: used right.
0: Yeah, yeah, it yeah. works great. The last thing you want is green spill bouncing around right, metal that, set. That, whole,
2: that whole pilot house comes comes alive when soft window light leaks through those portal windows. Yeah. And if was green out there, all you'd have bouncing around inside there would be green uh spill nastiness. and nastiness. And so it was all based on white screen Luma key type stuff. And the effects department did an amazing job. They even resolved with that white backdrop, they even resolved they, they held on to water droplets on the window. <laughs> with these, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I wondered about that because there are times where yeah you do see the glass sorry water on the glass and even drips falling in front of the windows and things like that uh which i thought was a rather nice detail uh so crazy to 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 think that they're able to keep all of that stuff and and the more you think about
2: it necessary
0: because uh, there would have been no other way to do it when so much of your movie is filmed against those windows
2: Right. So you you pour, you, you know, you recreate reality, a large, soft, expansive wraparound source out the windows and you just let the light penetrate and do what it does in reality and you get photorealism.
0: And so no fixtures inside, no
2: sneaky little
0: sky panels in the roof or anything like that. It really was just light from the windows and light from the fixtures built into the set.
2: Oh, sure. Shelley did all kinds of hidden... You know, the, the usual stuff, if he needed a bit of, you know, if the light wasn't making it all the way across the set, he would sneak something in to push it a little further. Or uh, we'd stage Tom to hit, you know, to, you know, if, if we had a warm practical and Tom was anywhere near it on one of his positions, we'd, we'd ask him to find the light and work that into the blocking so that Shelly didn't have to recreate anything from scratch um like i said the same as those tricks i was talking about in during a a rehearsal in the morning where you're trying to save yourself some time and and um you know the actor can light himself or herself yeah in cases
0: help us out with the lighting too uh you mentioned before like the veracity of being uh in the outside world with the elements at play and the movement of the ship and all that sort of stuff. One of those things is the snow that we're sort of, well, the ice, I should say that we're seeing kind of so beautifully rendered on the, on the ship here. Um, Were those sorts of details in the script or was that something that you were always looking for opportunities to, to add to it? Like the ocean spray, the rain, the ice.
2: Yeah, they, they were all those details. Of course, my job was to portray them and, and run with them. But all those details, faulty ra- radar, uh, uh, you know, he's about to, uh, uh, maybe it's come and gone. I think it has, but his windows freeze over and there's a yeah. beat of where he, he says, I got to see out these windows. And, and his, his, uh, maintenance man says, they're not, it's not electrical. They're frozen, <laughs> you know, and get some water, not boiling, you know, and swab the windows. I got to see out this damn thing. And so that's a, that's a written beat. And so you say to yourself, okay. And then his, his um, XO uh, walks in and says, you know, the ship's freezing up. I got to get the steam hoses to keep the depth charges free. And so you see that in the script and you, you naturally say, okay, when he walks outside in this sequence, I've got to portray a particularly harsh three hour period where the temperature drops and the ship is frozen. You know, and then I gotta figure out what the next time cut is in the script so that if I so that I don't have to maintain all that ice for the rest of the movie, right? Yeah. Um and so, you know, the details are written into the story, and then your job as direct to director is to sort of dramatize it visually.
0: And and kind of juggle the what's great for the movie versus what's great for the production. You know, it's like it might well be great for the ship to be frozen through the whole movie, but it's not practical. It costs us in time that could be better spent. You know, making more of the drama or the action or these other things that are important too. So that's interesting to hear you say. You know, you you've got to study the script and go, okay, how long can I maintain this? When can I cut this out of my life?
2: Uh, that's interesting. You want to hear a, a funny. Funny, funniest story. Uh, that scene we just passed, where he comes out because the windows have frozen up, and he said, "You know, I can swab the windows for you." And he says, "You know, use warm water, not boiling." And a beat later, he comes out to to, to see if he's if his guns have hit the U boat. So he comes outside, and there's three guys um, swabbing the portal windows in the background. And I, I, you know, what one of the hardest decisions I made on this damn movie was. When the guns, these guys are swabbing the windows, right? You'll appreciate this uh, as a director. These guys are swabbing the windows and the guns go off to fire. I'm like, do they look to see yeah. if they it or do they keep swabbing the windows? I don't know what it was about that decision, but I'm, I, it, it, I remember being pained by it for at least... Well, there a-
0: are millions of problems like that when you go and make a movie, right? And uh, you don't always know which ones will and won't matter. Like, uh, because you want the audience to be focusing on one thing, you know, the, what's happening in the foreground, but you do absorb the background details, you know? It's like, uh, is their training so so strong that they are focused on their task at hand? It's just mission critical to clean these windows? Or does human nature take over and they're looking at the the aftermath or the action of gunfire? Um, yeah, all of those details do
2: matter. It's a good, maybe it's a good example of of the unique challenge of this movie, because you tend to focus on whatever the movie needs. And this is a movie that follows a, a captain through his pilot house for, you know, 90 minutes. And, um, the only, the only details there are at times to use that are at your disposal to create the environment. And what you're looking at are the, you know, the guys swabbing the windows in the (laughs) back. What's the guy at the helm? How, you know, you know. People start. People's eyes are going to be exploring every nook and cranny of this pilot house and every guy in there for ninety minutes. <laughs> and so, how much attention do you pay to the guys swabbing the windows? Because people are going to look at them, right? It's not. And and if you and it's also part of the experiential factor. Um, if you feel at the end of the movie like these guys. Work their asses off to keep the ship afloat, keep the convoys safe. Then swabbing those windows is is part of your it's story. Part
0: of that, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely like you know part of the experience of watching this film is being dropped into a reality with so much veracity. You know that, that it's transportative. Like the 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 fact that the dialogue is period actu- accurate accurate and you know. Um, true to military form or whatever is part of what immerses you in it the fact that it was filmed on a real ship from the period the wardrobes right you know uh, again those all of those little details are part of why you're here watching this movie in the first place because you want to be transported to another place in time and feel all of the the hardships that went with that you know faulty equipment the elements, um, and the uncertainty of like where the enemy is, imminent danger that, you know, these guys could be attacked. And you could get caught in the crossfire from your own ship, bullets bouncing off the water. Like it's all of those details that us people who are blessed with a modern normal life don't have to contend with, you know, the joy to use probably the wrong adjective of watching this movie is to realize what these people actually went through. And again, so swabbing windows is is part of that.
2: Well, it's also, you know, if you're trying to create, if you're trying to transport people into a world and if you're making a movie where that world is so much a part of the experience itself and the narrative, um, you, you, trying to create texture in a movie is, is hard because movies get built on a shot by shot basis. You know, you can say before you start shooting a movie, I want it to feel wet. (laughs) Um, I want it to feel cold. I want it to, I want you to, I I want to see how hard it was to move on the decks of this, you know, you can say things about what you want the film to feel like. But, you know, now you're on the set and you lined up your camera and you're like, okay, so what do I do in this shot to make it feel wet? What do I do in this (laughs) shot? make it feel like these guys are working it you know it's intangible how do you build that one shot at a time yeah and and so and the and the only answer i could come up with is is make sure those guys that are swabbing the windows feel right you know yeah
0: uh, i i think it's so fascinating you know like all of these these period accurate details that are in the in this movie like these decoys you know the the fact that our protagonists on the boat haven't really encountered them before right like they're in the middle of this sequence now where they're partly being led astray by this decoy but they don't know that that's really a thing or at least not everybody on the crew does and it's only in the aftermath that that concept's kind of explained i love that that feeling that everybody is um working it out as they go along including the captain right that's kind of the point of the whole thing like he's been doing this a long time but he's never actually seen conflict before um and he's just trying to keep his head above water so to speak
2: yeah it's just, it, the training is over uh <laughs> the concept and the thrill of commanding your first uh destroyer on your first crossing is over and now it's like the the job is at hand and and um and it's interesting you talk about sort of how everyone's learning as they go and i remember the first time i keyed into how important that was to the film is was in the screenplay i remember tom when he first introduced the radar a little bit earlier in the film he described the insert of the radar by saying uh, uh, we see the we see the contact on the radar And it will make no sense at all when we see it, but it will. Right. Right. Um, And I remember thinking, I get it. I know. I know what he's doing. He's trying to, you know, he he wants to stay one step in front of the audience with the education that the film is going to give him about the way things work. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. In fact, he likes the fact that the first time we're going to see this, we have no freaking idea what's going on here because yeah. it puts the audience one step behind Krauss makes him look like he's truly in command and leans the audience into the movie saying hey if i'm going to enjoy this i better pay attention you Well, know, you're thrown
0: mean- in the deep end as well right like it's like okay what's going on you're playing catch up rather than getting ahead um sure. but you also it's also very smart in that it does and i think it's kind of in one of these scenes here that we we hear it happen like but um you're always very good at kind of like just giving us the right info at the right time. So like we'll call them screw noises a number of times and we'll probably be like, I think I know what a screw noise is. And then when they, the next guy repeats the line, he'll say too many propellers and like, we'll go, Oh, okay. So I just learned that a screw is a propeller. And like, now I'm a little bit more informed and I too, at like the crew on the ship have been better trained
2: for battle going forward. It's a compromise. Uh, uh, I will say uh that the first draft of the script did not contain the word propeller. Oh, is that
0: right. <laughs> Tom's a little too uh strict on the authenticity.
2: Well, uh what you just described was something we learned um as we previewed the film that they that the audience here and there, you know, because if you're gonna err on the side of an experience that, you know, makes people lean in and pay attention, better to err on the side of, of too little than too much. Uh, which is Tom's style of filmmaking and and mine too, uh, pretty much. And so it was a lot easier to add nuggets of information in post-production in exactly like that than it was to, to try and figure out second guess the audience before we made the film. Yeah. Uh, In other words, we we started out giving them 100% credit and we made the film that way. And then we, we screened it and where we thought the audience needed a little more help than we might've given them. We did exactly that. All we need is one line off screen that says propeller instead of screw. And everyone has what they they need. Yeah,
0: You've got a unique opportunity with this film too, right? With so many voices coming in over the radio, you've got the other ships, Dickie Eagle and Harry, and then you've got, uh, the ability to be, you know, up in the the captain's quarters when we're hearing a line coming from the sonar bay or whatever, uh, and those lines can be whatever you want them to be in post production. Yeah. Did you change things much, like before the text tech- testing process or after, like just when you got into post production?
2: Well, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, there's a maybe there's a few moments where Tom's mouth is behind the receiver of his TBS telephone. Where we needed to slip in a line, and because his lips didn't show, we could cheat a little extra information in if we thought we needed it, but not too much of that, just you know, sort of the typical amount, and this insert right here of the of the speaker, um you know you roll off a whole you know sixty seconds of a speaker, and you know you can cut it in anywhere you want, <laughs> you know, <whatever laughs> you want. but but luckily, you know, the screenplay was crafted with that balance in mind so it wasn't uh it wasn't that big of a of a uh redo um Um, the
0: i i want to ask more questions about post-production but i also want to flag how
2: awesome the
0: gray wolf's voice is like it's just got that perfect uh mocking kind of holier than thou quality that's pushing pushing the audience's buttons at the same time as pushing tom's
2: yeah this was uh this was this Sort of construct that they could tap into the TBS frequency and sort of taunt the American destroyers uh, is technically possible, and you know it's hard to imagine anything uh, that didn't happen during World War II. Pretty much anything you can think of happened somewhere. Um, so this is a bit of a uh, a construct that that isn't in the novel that Tom created. To, to To make a more personal, to create a more personal vendetta between the yeah. the U boats and uh, Tom's character Krauss um, and and uh, you know, so then you, you write it in, and then you then you ask your technical advisor, in our case Dale Die, you know, uh, what would they do with this TH eight switch channels, right? And what would they call those channels? And then our other technical consultant would do some research and throw us a line of dialogue switch all channels to zebra execute you know and um and that was a little bit of that was part of the development of the script
0: i um i love that it also gives you a chance to kind of get some of the motifs and metaphors more front and center too like you might have missed the wolf on the side of the u-boat and hearing him you know talk about the fact that we're hungry and we're hunting you and that sort of stuff makes this feel even more like a flock of lambs kind of trying to cross cross the paddock paddock but being hunted you know uh, it, it gives it a more primal and visceral energy when it otherwise could have felt clinical and well not clinical cuz clearly it's a giant battle and visceral on that level but to find the sort of poet, poetry in it it's it's quite a nice thing and like you say it also gets that personal vendetta growing between our unseen antagonist and our very much on-screen
2: protagonist and and Krauss is wearing a sheepskin jacket Yeah dude I
0: noticed and I love it and it looks cool that's like the perfect union of what works thematically and what <laughs> makes your lead actor look badass as yeah. well. Um, I, I, while we were talking, there was this great, beautiful shot. You know, where we pulled up and up away from the battle through the clouds to the indifferent sort of skies and the beauty of this planet. When when did that image come to you, and did you have to fight for the extra VFX budget to put that sort of thing in?
2: Exactly. Maybe, uh, it was yeah? scripted. It was one of the, one of the only sort of, you know, kind of visual effect centerpieces that was scripted. Right. Um, Tom, the writer needed a transition from, you know, to to portray a battle that we couldn't afford to (laughs) actually shoot. So the idea was, uh, you know, imply it by pulling up and, 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 uh, and it was also designed at the time to be one of the few, if not the only God's eye, you know, uh, bird's eye mm-hmm. shots in the film. Uh, we added a few bird's eye shots um, in post-production to help with uh, tactical clarity, um, but it, in the screenplay itself, uh, that was going to stand out as one of the only sort of uh, objective shots in the whole film and be kind of and make a statement in that regard um, and fly up above the clouds and as you say, the indifferent heavens. And the glory of God, you know, above this battle, um, I think was was the way it was scripted. And um, yeah, that was something Tom uh, wrote into the screenplay because it's you know it's transitional.
0: I, I I suddenly find myself wondering how it works when Tom is your writer, but also your not just lead actor but star. And and I cast my mind back to other projects that I've been a part of or stories that I've heard. Is that inevitably when you make a movie like this? your poor writer is off to the side kind of going, what's that? We don't have time to shoot that. Okay, I'll change it. I'll rewrite this. And then like, oh, this actor doesn't like this thing. So I'm going to change that. Like, was Tom actually still working on the script while you were making the movie to take on board things that you were learning through the production? Or at some point, does he dust his hands and kind of entrust that to to you or somebody? Because he just uh, has to focus on acting.
2: A bit of both. Um, we We worked on the script and developed it a bit. Uh, including taking a 120-page script and and whittling it down to 95 uh, wow. before we started shooting. Um, and um, and everything we shot's in the film. This is not one of those movies where it's missing four scenes that you could put on the DVD. Is that right?
0: You didn't cut out a giant battle sequence that you decided you, you didn't need.
2: There's, in fact, there's maybe even two, only two or three lines of dialogue that's missing from the. Is movie. That right? Wow. Uh, it was very tight. And, um, and we did that for budgetary reasons. We wanted it to be as tight as it could be. So we had as the money we spent was on everything we knew would be in the film. But, um, but yeah, no, Tom was great. Like when I first met him, obviously he's my boss. He gets to decide whether I get hired, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you get hired and now you're the director and you've got a responsibility to make sure that this crazy screenwriter wrote something that can be shot for the budget and that the ideas in the screenplay, you know, as an old, as a, as a director I once shot for, as a cinematographer once said, you can't thread a script through a projector.
0: <laughs> that's great. I'm going to put that on some merch and make that a, a, a shirt that we sell here on this podcast. That's, gr- that's a great line. I need to speak to the author, get the rights for that one.
2: You'll have to call Mikhail Solomon for that one. Uh Okay. Noted. That's Um, good. And the point being that scripts are blueprints and ideas. And just because the idea is on the page doesn't mean that it's going to translate visually. So the first step is working with Tom and saying, okay, I know what you want to do here. I think we need a little more of this and we need to exaggerate that because otherwise you, the idea you've got here, which is great, isn't going to come across or isn't going to play or isn't going to create the the beat that I think you want as a storyteller here. Uh, and so you work that stuff out. And, and it was also a very, you know, the narrative lives behind Krauss's eyes and inside his head. The, it's all the, so it's a interesting little ballet between making sure the audience understands i told uh, what i what i what i told tom was i said my biggest concern is that you can you can act your ass off when it comes to making any given decision throughout this film but if the audience doesn't understand the two options you're deciding mm-hmm. between none of your performance is going to register because it doesn't you can show you know you can You can play the hell out of a a moment of dilemma, but if they don't know what the dilemma is, that acting goes to waste, right? So my job is to make sure that I can visually portray all of these unique tactical and uh, strategic dilemmas um, and understand it. Even if, you know, uh, for example, uh, there's a beat where he comes out and stares at the, Earlier in the film where he's rushing out to meet the sub and try to stop it. That scene we discussed earlier. And he comes out on the bridge wing. It's scripted. You know, he he scans the horizon for the U-boat. Well, you know, I could cut to Tom and then I could cut to the ocean. Does that do it for you? You know, you know what I mean? Like, is that, you know, so what if you know, what if we raise the binoculars here instead of just staring out at the horizon so that I could cut to, you know, the binoculars kind of convey a sense of you think you see something more specific, Mm. but there's nothing there. Yeah, That's like a very subtle example of what I'm talking about. Um, You know, you're taking very internal stuff and trying to make, you know, trying to get images to convey it yeah
0: oh absolutely and like even as you're talking we're seeing this kind of like intense ballet playing out uh between two of our destroyers and the u-boat and i'm just thinking about every little decision that's gone into this like from the amount of camera shake and all and the size of splashes like it's mind-blowing really please tell me you you look excited to talk about something and i want to hear it
2: this is uh another interesting example of the challenge there's this beat we just saw go by where he's trying to get this ship to get out of the way so he can fire, mm. it but over there on the left, uh-oh, suddenly that cannon has swung around and faced him, and he's about to get it in the in the port side of his midships yeah, and I remember uh the challenge here being, okay, imagine dailies for this it's just it's Tom. You know, lifting glasses, reacting to A, lifting him again, seeing B, seeing C. There's like all these narrative things happening out there. I got to get, and he's going, come on, come on, get out of the way. All right. So, and so, you know, I've got to tell the story of getting Dickie out of the way so that he can shoot at the sub without hitting Dicky. And so, and you're not you're not going to have the footage of those submarines. This wasn't pre-visualized. No. So you say to yourself, wow, if I don't get every beat on Tom's side that will connect with the beats out there over the water, I could find myself missing the footage I need on Tom to convey his concern mm-hmm. over the ships, you know, and by the way, how many different times am I going to cut to Tom? Yeah. To convey the ships separating, right? I know that sounds silly, but you know, get in the editing room, you're like, yikes, I wish I could cut back to the ship one more time and and slow the amount of time it takes for the ships to part before he can shoot. Yeah. But if I don't have enough reaction from Tom, if I don't have Tom play out in real time, how long those ships are going to take to separate I don't have the footage I need to come in and and use post-vis to create the sequence. And then you run into the trouble. Like I wanted him to see that the gun was swinging around towards him and react, but his binoculars are over his face. Right. You know, how are you going to? And so I I said, you know what? We need one of those beats where you see it and you lower your glasses and give us the reaction and then pull your glasses back up. Yeah. It's a dramatic cheat. Need to do it. but if I don't do it, I won't have that beat of impending doom I need you right know? and um then you go back into post and you've got a post viz room in the other side you know who's cranking out post viz shots so that you can start marrying up what you imagined it would be and got out of Tom <laughs> with what it will be on the on the visual effects side and um so you know you find yourself narrating uh in a sequence like that to the actor where you're like, okay, the ships, you know, it's damn it. The ships are too close. You can't fire. And you let him riff on that for a beat, you know, a few seconds and you're like, okay, it's finally starting to, to pull apart. Right. You're, You're trying, you're using your body language. Come on, come on. And then I, and then I leave him alone for, you know, four or five seconds to kind of riff on that idea. And then I'm like, okay, what beat do I need next? Oh, now I need him to notice, the crew climbing out of the top of the U-boat and running towards the gun on deck. Right. And I'm like, okay, someone's coming out of the, the guys are coming down the ladder, right? What are they doing? Where are they going? Oh, they're running towards the front of the U-boat. But now look back at Dickie, forget that for a minute because I've been, you know, and then wait a minute, look back at that gun. What are they doing? Oh shit. They're turning it towards you, you know? So you're, (laughs) you're trying to, you you would never expect an actor to to sit on the set and study a piece of paper that has 10 acting beats in it and say go do those 10 beats yeah. so the solution ends up being sometimes in an elongated sequence like this sometimes you know you're sort of narrating it so that the actor has real time uh things to 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 work with but also that they're clearly delineated,
0: right? Yes. like Otherwise they get too compressed and they're not clear and clean that you can get right. an, an in and an out point that tells just one bit of story that you right. can then cut away from. They can become too fluid otherwise. So it's actually, it's interesting, like conducting that way yeah. on a movie like this, like is almost necessary. Like even if Tom could remember all of the beats, I imagine that they would kind of, blur together a little bit and become one natural performance, but that would happen too quickly, especially when there isn't anything to be reacting to and there isn't the great score and the great sound design to draw those things out the way that a director will want to, you know. Um,
2: I, yeah, it sounds yeah, like yeah. a
0: tough gig for you, though, but I mean, it, it it worked.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and back to your earlier question about the screenplay, Tom wrote the sequence, but he can't possibly imagine... What I've got in mind, yeah, uh, you know, and when I'm going to pull those, you know, a movie is so much more visually than the screenplay just by yeah. definition, because you can't pack details into a screenplay like that. So he did not script the um, guys coming out of the Conning Tower. He scripted the gun suddenly going off. Yeah, but I get the crew to the gun, <laughs> and. Now- to the gun, I've got to have him react to the crew with the gun. So you're filling yeah. in all the blanks and building on the screenplay. And you got, and like you said, you got to make sure that that footage is there, or you don't have a sequence.
0: Well, it's interesting because it ends up being the backbone for the entire edit. Because uh, right. I think that I think the expectation that the public would have about VFX heavy movies like this, and this is about as VFX heavy as they come. In as much that, like almost every shot, I'm guessing has VFX in it. Um, you know, that, that that stuff would be pre and that you're going and you're shooting like little moments to slot into an existing pre But here you're capturing the performance and then making an edit around that and slotting in the postvis opportunities, like but around what you've got from Tom. So you kind of right. really have to have it worked out and then you have to have it from Tom. Um
2: you direct, yeah. you direct the you direct the virtual world twice. First you, you direct it in your head. So that you can inspire the actor to react to it. Then you come back to the editing room with, and you see what the actor gave, gave you, as you put it, a spine, right? And the actor's going to give you stuff that you didn't uh, expect. Yeah. That then inspires the post-vis process where you, for a second time, direct the submarine again. Um the, I
0: can't imagine how uh I mean it, every director is different, and you know maybe you have so much self-confidence that you knew when you saw the first assembly that you had a hell of a m- movie on your hands, but I could only assume that given that all first assemblies are quite harrowing. Uh, that this must have been a tough movie to watch before you had the great music, before you had the great sound and before you had every other shot, which was a VFX shot. It's like Tom's at the window looking at something, cut to nothing, then cut back to Tom and he's reacting to something that we haven't seen yet at that point in the post-production process. Like how did how did you feel when you first saw the assembly? How long was it? And did you have, was your editor putting in some post Viz cards or something to help you make sense
2: of what you were looking at? Oh well, that's a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can break it down. I can do the the uh, Aaron to Tom Hanks part by part. How was your reaction to the seeing the first assembly?
2: Uh, it was re- really hard because uh, we didn't have any sort of advanced communication techniques going on during the um, shooting of the film, and it, and the schedule was so tight that it was wasn't like I could. Sit down with the editor for an hour every night. Yeah. So uh, he was close to on his own during this intense 35 day shoot. And I came back to town and looked to see what he'd done. And as you can imagine, um, you know, they bring the editor on with, you know, with enough time, advanced time to create bins and get the room ready, right? So the concept of engaging, I had by that point, brought my cinematographer Shelley into this sort of mental inner circle about the virtual world, the maps, the, the you know, and the cinematographer Shelley had to understand it on close to the same level I did, in terms of really before we started covering a scene inside the pilot house, the cinematographer had to be up in the sky with me talking about the battle, or he or he couldn't function yeah. as my right hand man. On the set, at any given moment, right? So we had enough time to become close in that technical respect, but the editor did not. So you can imagine seeing all this footage of Tom, you know, lifting binoculars and any, you know, you go to the script and you go, oh, I guess this is where, you know, the ship's trying to get apart and I. And we haven't opened the postvis room, but there's this really cool um there's this really cool previs footage that we were playing around with that might work as a stand-in. And of course it doesn't. No. You know, and because it doesn't contain the beat of uh U-boat people climbing out of a climb climbing tower, right? And so but there's gonna be. So you know you slot it in there, and then you look at it, and with none of in in many cases, with none of this Basic narrative information contained in the slug, you know, the scene wasn't there yet. Yeah. So it was, but it was, he, he did a terrific job with what he had, but the, but to answer your question, you just go, wow, we got a lot of work to do because we have to build the movie. We have to direct 50% of the movie. Yeah. We have, granted Not all of it is as complex as that scene we were talking about with a, you know, with the sub up next to the, to the, to the Corvette in the middle of the battle. Sometimes the slug was just, you know, binoculars looking at the horizon of the water, in which case, you know, that, that, that wasn't that difficult to convey, but in some of these complex sequences, you just had to say, okay, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's, let's. Let's get some snacks for the boys in the preview, <laughs> uh, and let's and you know let's create a workflow where we can go out there and say we need a sh- quick shot of the sub and some little animated figures getting out of the conning tower, and when it's ready, send it to the bin and we'll cut it in. And you start building it one lump of clay at a time.
0: But it's even more than that, though. Like obviously the you're right that there are sequences that aren't as complex as others in terms of the back and forth and the editorial structure of that part of the movie, but also what makes part of a huge part of what makes this movie special is the immersion in a time and a place and a situation and without the sound design, without the, you know, these shots, like if, if that's green out there or even white out there, instead of that sky and that mood that we're seeing in the background, you know, it seems like an incidental detail, but it's that and the howling wind and, uh, you know, when we do look out the window and we cut out and actually see the ocean, like without that stuff, I can imagine it's like you, you're constantly having to tell everybody to keep the faith and you're constantly having to kind of give of yourself to get your vision onto the screen. You don't get anything for free in, in, in making a movie this way, well, other than, when- you know, a close up on Tom Hanks and the rest of your incredible cast.
2: It's like imagine a preview of Star Wars with no star. <laughs> and famously not very good. Like, you know, it, it's tough. Uh, There's also a legendary story about Gravity who, you know, and the way and they they made the movie with a lot of background replacement, right? Yeah. So previews did not have the world, quote unquote world. Yeah. Immerse the audience in. And when you're making a movie that's so much about the world, if the world isn't complete, and isn't connecting on an emotional level with an audience, you're just, you're sapped of any ability to, to understand how they're going to feel about the final experience. So yeah, yeah, that's a challenge.
0: And what about that when it came to testing? Like, did you find the testing process at all helpful beyond maybe like, Oh, we don't know what a screw noise is. So let's add a line about that with audiences weighing in, on the emotional kind of journey, like pacing or anything like that in a meaningful way when, you know, how could they, given that they're not seeing the finished thing?
2: Well, the, the previews were a mixed bag in the sense that on the one hand, they could never enjoy the movie for what it was going to be eventually because they, we couldn't submerse them in the world. It was just a bunch of temp, temp stuff. Um, on the other hand, it was encouraging because what they loved about the movie was, t- is the way Tom uh, pulled them into it and yeah. engaged. He's a movie star,
0: you know. He's like a real movie star. They don't, they don't breed him quite that way anymore.
2: And I don't. I'm not sure. You know. I'm not sure if there's two or three actors in the world that could have made Greyhound in that respect because it's just the the weight on Tom's shoulders, the responsibility for connecting the audience with this kind of a movie is just, is immense.
0: Well, it's twofold. It's, it's, the, it's the credibility and the performance and bringing the audience along with you, but it's also the self-belief through probably an arduous and discombobulating production process, right? Like when you're shouting at him, it's this and, and then it's that and then turn left and then there's a boat there, you know, you could imagine a certain actor throwing up their hands and being like, I didn't go to RADA for this. Uh, right. but you know this is something that tom's passionate about like he's willed this movie into existence because presumably he loves movies like this and what this one could be so uh yeah it's good to have friends on high i guess pals on your side through
2: the, the yeah, production well, process no question that he knew what he was getting himself into that's for sure
0: <laughs> i'm he- uh, i'm interested yeah. to ask about the um the portion of the movie that was shot on the USS kid right the the real battleship like how much of the movie did you shoot there and how do you approach that like a shot like this one that we're seeing which is quite a big part of the ship but it's listing on like a crazy angle is that a techno crane on a really high angle to simulate the 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 ship on a on uh you know a, a list or how are you doing yeah. some of this stuff
2: that's the pilot house set the pilot house set we keep talking about was not only shootable from the inside, but you could back you could get back in the stage and shoot at wow. that level of the destroyer. Uh the shot you just saw was shot on stage using the set, uh tilted at an extreme angle. That's an extreme uh, angle. That was a lot. Yeah, it was. There's no cheat there. There's no Dutch angle. That's that was real. And um but the bottom two thirds, everything all the All the superstructure below his bridge deck is a visual uh, digital extension.
1: Gotcha.
2: Um, So yeah, we're shooting a plate on a techno that's flying by, as if the ship's going by us, Um, and the bottom two thirds of the shot of the plate is the stage floor. Gotcha.
0: And so you do a shot like that in studio because the whole thing is tilting to such an extreme degree. But would you have otherwise done a shot like that on the real ship? Is that sort of how you were breaking these things down? Yeah.
2: Uh, like we're coming up on a, like right here, the ship breaks out of the smoke there with the guns. That's the USS Kid. Wow. The- that I didn't
0: expect that. Is that CG smoke or was that real smoke? Yeah. That-
2: CG smoke comped in with a, a, a technocrane shot of the um, the real ship. But the tricky part is, even though you're only stat two, that's the kid. Um, that there as well. That there as well. Um, all these, you know, the multiple guns firing at this U-boat right before it blows up is is the USS Kid. Yeah, wow. Um, and but what you have to do, even though they're one second, two second shots, you've got to subtextually imply that it's being shot from another ship. Yeah. There's another one, and when you do that. When you look at the math, and which I was able to do with, my, with that program I told you would float ships in the digital realm. Yeah. You can actually calculate what the offset of two ships floating beside each other ends up being in terms of this ship goes down while this ship goes up and it creates this speed change, right? Now, it wouldn't work if I just put a static camera there because even though the shot's only a second long – you still need the feeling of being on the some other ship, yeah. while the two ships are kind of in opposing motion, and so you calculate what that would be like uh, in real life, and it ends up being up and down on a crane, forty feet every six seconds. So we wow. had five mo- moving that techno up and down, oscillating it. Uh, did you sorry, it, did you say five grips? It was it was yeah. manpower. Yeah, it was manpower yanking and super techno up and down 40 to 60 feet every six seconds. So that that two second uh, piece that you use has the vertical motion you need to imply that a ship is out on the water.
0: Oh, that's done incredibly well. You know, like now I'm learning from the stuff that's shot uh, practically, but also I'm assuming the stuff that's created digitally, especially in that first sequence when we're establishing just how wild the seas are and how powerful the, boat, the boats are, the way that they're like knifing into the, the the chop and then turning and sloshing water across their deck and the impacts of each one of those things is done very, very well. And then that's often matched up with handheld work on the ship that has its own kind of movement to it to match, like How? How do you how did you do that? Was there was there attachments on the camera to give the the camera a bit of shake that was inorganic feeling, or was it really just an operator
2: giving well, it a we, wobble? It was uh it's credit to our operators because the, the the standing order was shoot it like you were shooting it for the first time, that yeah. you're just a documentary cameraman, nothing too choreographed, uh don't know that the captain's gonna move here until you see him move there, so the camera's yeah. a little bit behind. not too polished, uh, or, or, or all knowing. And, um, and then, uh, to get everybody in sync, we, every shot you see on the interior of this bridge, no matter what sequence it was, we were, uh, the motion base on the set was moving in such a rhythm. Uh, and at such an angle as it would in real life. So that, if a scene was on a Beaufort s- scale of six in terms of ocean height, we had a motion set for that. Or if it was a calmer sea, so that so that if you map out all the ocean conditions in your motion base through the film, you pop up the motion you need. And now, boom, uh, because that motion base inspires the actors, you know, whether they choose to hold on to a set or not. And yeah. inspires camera operators to be uh, less, you know, had, they can't be quite as finessey. Yeah. Because going on for dear life, if you <laughs> rock the, ship, the way it's rocked in real life, then both the actors and the camera operators are are their method actors. They're, yeah, you know, you're in it, and you get it for free because you're doing it.
0: That's uh, inspired and expensive, I'm guessing. You know, to to build a set that way, uh, not cheap but necessary.
2: Yeah, our uh, we built our own. Um, our special effects uh f- a man um built that motion base pretty much from scratch and um and so we owned it and you know we had only just this one set really on the motion base so we and and then and then it, it costs you a little bit in production too because you have to tie it down when you cut you have to yeah. um, do it roll and then uh there's a little gang plank to get on <laughs> the set and then you have to open the drawbridge and close the drawbridge to let people on and off before you start moving it back and forth and that that kind of wears on the minute by minute production yeah. but we got into a groove to where it just became part of the work did uh, anybody actually get seasick from your motion based photography nobody that admitted it
0: yeah that's a that's a recipe for a hazing i guess
2: if you if you prove yourself to be the weak-stomached man of the the crew and every morning before we started shooting, because the set got really boring, you can imagine coming back to this set day after day after day and cramming eight guys in a little box, steel box. Tom would was working with our Academy Award-nominated sound. Uh, yes, congrats to them and to everybody on the film. Uh, uh, and he would slip them a water or sailing-themed pop song in the morning <laughs> to kick off the day. You know, So I think on day one it was Rock the Boat. <laughs> um, and then maybe Lionel Richie's sail on, you know, every day it was a different, um, pop song. And then because Shelley had the, the lights, uh, programmed for different color temperatures behind this white psych, he, he could actually, uh, plug that into the sound guys deck and give a light show. So every morning we started with a, with a song and a light show. To, oh, that's to break. brilliant.
0: I think you've missed a, uh, a marketing opportunity here you should have released a compilation album like you know dj hanks presents songs of the sea
2: do you uh does this post anywhere where your listeners can give feedback
0: yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's available where all good podcasts are found but then most easily receiving feedback on
2: instagram or or by email even because I I have never done this. Your your podcast will be the first time I've ever revealed this. There is a Easter egg in Greyhound. Well, hello, sir. We like that, exclusives. That, yes, that connects to the movie Forrest Gump. So Ooh. the challenge challenge to the listener in in whatever Instagram or you know, I'm thinking of like YouTube where you can post under the video. If if there's any scenario where you know people can guess their what the easter egg is um, i'm
0: I'm feeling a lieutenant dan kind of connection maybe something in the military uh, i'm gonna have to do my own deep dive now
2: yep so that can be a little
0: competition in your All right well we we appreciate that that's that's a bit of fun and an excuse for everyone to watch the movie one more time
2: it's a tough one by the way it's not easy but it's we there. shy
0: away from no challenges here sir okay we're inspired by you uh you know leading this ship to battle this is this was no main feat making this this movie and there's still you know as I've, you know we're going towards the close now there's still so much we didn't get a chance to talk about like uh your incredible academy award nominated sound team uh and also the the score i thought was particularly
2: exceptional yes he did a terrific job uh, had you
0: worked with these guys before the sound team and the composer
2: no, they were all, they were all, uh, 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 you know, past collaborators with Gary Getzman, um, who, as you know, has done all kinds of, uh, work in this genre with band of brothers and Pacific and, and whatnot. Um, so, uh, he, you know, when we, when it came time to crew up, Gary was a, a great resource for the yeah. kind that needed to make the movie.
0: Did you always kind of know how you wanted the, the movie to end or what sort of feeling you wanted to leave the the audience with as the movie comes to a close?
2: Yes. In fact, um, this is probably my biggest contribution to the script in the sense that, that when this is all over with and, and he's been relieved of command and this is all added up to such a challenge and a trial by fire and he's performed the way he's performed and he's dealt with what he dealt with and, the question for me was, what does it all mean? And wh- what does it all lead to? And there was so much self-doubt and, and so much self-sacrifice. Um, there was a little beaten script where it said th- the keeling passed by a, a bunch of people on a ship across, you know, a mile away that were cheering. And I, I I said to Tom, we need to create a moment out of this. Krauss leaves the bridge to go to sleep. and And it feels to me like... Let's touch base with the men he protected that are gonna go over and fight World War II on land. Yeah. Let's let's hand off the naval sacrifice to the men that were that he was he was shepherding that would go over and free Europe. And and let's tie the whole the whole story of World War Two together and let them thank Greyhound and give the captain his you know his rewards for the experience and, and sacrifice and uh, fortitude that he showed uh, through the film, and and so I worked pretty hard to to kind of make that last beat with the passing troopship into something that felt like a uh, just rewards for mm. a job um, and uh, so I wanted I wanted him to feel as though I wanted him to be recognized by the only people that could which were his fellow, uh, in this case, soldiers um, that are headed to Europe under his protection and then put him to bed yeah. and and give him the give him the sleep that he's earned so much and uh, and pull away from the convoy in celebration of uh, of just how challenging and how uh, this kind of fighting was and 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 celebrate, uh, you know, a branch of the service that that uh, that that not a lot of filmmakers have actually explored, at least you know, in the past three or four years.
0: I'm I'm feeling uh, certain kinds of parallels between uh, Krause's arduous journey uh, to a well earned rest and perhaps your own directing this movie. Yeah.
2: yeah, I did. I did pull up the sheets and and take a and and and, and get some sleep after this one was over. Um, I bet, but it was also very. It was also fun. I mean, you know, it's a destroyer movie with Tom Hanks. You know, who wouldn't sign up for that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you're literally getting a a chance to turn your bath time play time from when you're a seven year old oh. kid into a multi million dollar Hollywood blockbuster with one of Hollywood's greatest stars.
2: I I used to play, I had a World War II uh, playset when I was a kid. You know, the plastic. Nazis versus the plastic Americans with barbed wire and tanks and yeah you know, and, and, uh, and uh, played with that you know so it's it's a childhood dream right you get to you get to instead of it being toys you get to play with the real thing and and uh, and celebrate you know a really important piece of history at the same time
0: um well I think you've gone and, and turned an important piece of history into an incredible movie so thank you so much for coming on to talk about it if you've got a few more minutes up your sleeves while the the credits roll there were a couple extra things that i still have not picked your brain about
2: okay it's
0: very brief i have to ask shooting second unit on titanic uh how how on earth did that play out for you and was that any lessons to be found in shooting that ship-based movie before you embarked on making your own
2: well, yes and no, uh, it, the sea conditions were different, right? So none of the, none of portraying the sea conditions on Titanic prepares you for trying to tell the story of the North Atlantic, right? Yeah. Um, or at least these conditions in the North Atlantic and the, and Greyhound gnawed through the water and got tossed around in a way that Titanic didn't. Um, but, I'll, but interestingly enough, Oh, and then it, of course Titanic spoils you cause it, if if you're looking to James Cameron for the kind of control and budget you know <laughs> that you can count on to make your movie when the time comes, you're you're making a big mistake.
0: Yeah. The budget of your second unit shoot was probably five times the budget
2: of what you had to make Greyhound. Um and but one interesting thing that that I learned from Titanic that I used on Greyhound. The the USS Kid that we used as the stand-in ship, the one that was sitting static in the river down in Baton Rouge, or you know, when we wanted a larger view of the ship, as we talked about earlier. Um, as you can see in the film, Krauss is standing on the port and the starboard side of that ship. So anytime I needed to see the the whole ship, I shot on the kid. But the kid had a big, huge tower that it was attached to, a mooring. On the port side, so you could only shoot that ship from the starboard side. Um, and so, when I wanted to see Krauss connected to the guns on the real ship on the port side, the only option I had was to do what Jim did on Titanic when he was to stage it the mirror stage the scene in in in, in its mirror form and flop the film.
0: Oh, just to add to your directorial yeah. mindfuckery, like yeah, you know, right. that's
2: yeah. A challenge, mindfuckery is a good word for it. So, <laughs> so, so, what you'd do, you'd say, "Good morning, gents. Here's what we're going to do today? We're going to rehearse the scene. You know, scene sixty-nine, uh, where you all walk outside the starboard, uh, the port side of the ship. Uh, and then, when we're done reacquainting ourselves with what we'd done on the stage, we're going to do the mirror image of that scene." and, and uh, shoot it from this side. So you'd rehearse the scene the way you used to shoot it on the port side to refim- you know, to get the muscle memory back.
0: Yeah.
2: And you'd say, okay, everybody. And some of the actors would sort of implicitly understand how to mirror themselves, and some were like, what? Yeah,
0: that's hard. Down to, like, left hand becomes right hand. It's not just right. I stand on Tom's left shoulder instead of his right. It's that okay. I have to, you know, reach for the binoculars with the other hand.
2: Exactly. And luckily, the destroyer itself was symmetrical in that respect. So, you know, it wasn't too, there were, there's a few things that are, you could pick out if you wanted to, but, and then, then you'd shoot it. And, um, and so, you know, it not only broke down from what you shot on the stage versus what you shot on the ship, but then there's what you shoot on the ship on its proper side to what you shoot on the ship flopped. Wow. Well at
0: least you had a very expensive training ground in the form of Titanic to learn that craft.
2: Right. Yeah, Jim Jim would go as far as, you know, putting wedding rings on the other finger and and he'd have to the artwork like exit sign uh, not exit signs but you know signs would have to be printed backwards and oh, wow. the art would come out, you know, the night before and 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 prep the ship for mirrored mirrored photography. And on the call sheet, makeup and our department, everybody would know, today's a mirrored day. So that means I've got to go in and take the forks and put them on the other side of the plate. (laughs) Um, And, of course, the reason he did that is because, you know, his ship was was moored in one position with a view out to an open ocean off the coast. But that only gives you one side of the ship where you can see the empty horizon of the ocean in the background. If Enough. you want to see the ocean on the other side of the ship, the only way to do it is to shoot that same side of the ship and flop it.
0: Oh, man. Uh, non-trivial filmmaking, very, very complex stuff. Uh, how did you get that gig? How did that come your
2: way? Well, one of my oldest friends from USC film school days, Steve Quayle, uh, came out of school and went to work as a kind of jack-of-all-trades for Jim at Lightstorm starting with, you know, dumb insert shots or helping him build a, a thea- THX theater at Lightstorm. Little right. technical odds and ends. And he finally became so invaluable that Jim said, why don't you just shoot the second unit for me on Titanic? <laughs> and I'd had some success in, in, as a cinematographer in the TV side of things on a Stephen Bochco show. So when Steve threw my name at Jim, he goes, oh, yeah, oh, that's a funny story. So, Murder One, my big break as a cinematographer coming out of music videos, right? I um, I worked my ass off on that on that series because it was a trial by fire for me, learning yeah. about narrative filmmaking. So, anyway, day one on Titanic, Steve introduces me to Jim. I walk into this set and it's so quiet, and he uses a, a kind of a Mister microphone, and um, and it's it's like unbelievably quiet. And what strikes you is that it's it's like 150 people being un- unbelievably quiet. <laughs> and he says, "Hey, uh, Aaron." He says, "Hey, Jim. Aaron's here." And he goes, "Hi," and I go, "Nice to meet you." And he goes, "Oh, we already met." And I'm like, "What?" He goes, "Yeah, we already met." And I said, "No, I'm sure I would have remembered." Yeah, you. that feels like something you'd remember. Yeah, that's. I'm sorry, Jim, but uh, that's not possible. And and he says, "Oh no, it was on the set of Murder One." Huh. He oh, was he was, a, he was friends with um, our executive producer on that show and had come over and to see him and, and I guess, got invited. Hey, you want to come see the set? And he did. And he said, I walked I walked through the set and and uh, Chick, Egley was his name, Chick introduced us, but you were down on the floor wrestling with a Kino flow. <laughs> and you just kind of looked up at me over your shoulder and said, oh, yeah, nice to meet you, and went back to work. <laughs> <laughs> that's typical
0: I, Jim Cameron, though, right? Like nothing slips him by. He's going to remember that and hold that over you.
2: Yeah. And I said, Oh, geez, I'm sorry. He goes, Oh, no, no, it was great. You were working your ass off, man. He that's goes, Well, that's a Welcome. good sign. He says, Welcome to Mexico. <laughs> now go uh, shoot so- something. Yeah so when when my friend Steve pitched me as the second unit DP that's what he remembered was watching me wrangle that Kina flow on the on the set working my ass off and he said yeah hire Aaron he'd be great. Oh man and that's 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 a Hollywood story right there and I appreciate
0: you you sharing it. Uh my last question was just about being an Oscar winner. Like where where is the Oscar sitting in your in your house? <sighs>
2: Uh, Well, it's on a little table next to the ASC awards and a spirit award. Little, it's, Just making
0: it's, all of the other awards feel inadequate. Just like, you know, lording work. over them, standing it's,
2: proud as a golden statue does. You say that because I had to decide how to put them there. And I, the only thing I'd come up with is like the other awards is sort of a backdrop. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's fun. They, they're sitting out there and they're a nice reminder of, of, good times and hard work and, and a lot of people besides me getting their just rewards for their hard work. And, but it was, it was quite a thing. Um, you know, did the whole, the whole bit, you know, sitting in the auditorium, getting your name called, going up on wow. stage and all the parties. Cause the Oscar, uh, it, it's, it's the one opportunity in your life as just a regular old filmmaker where you get to be a star, you yeah. can get it. In- you got to do they don't know who you are but if you hold the oscar up you go right into the party right oh yeah um i've often thought you know i wonder if i
0: (laughs) I know where this is going and i love it
2: uh, if i unscrewed the plate (laughs) you wouldn't
0: um, even have to would you are they really looking at the name plate when you roll up to the party
2: i could get in a limo get out holding the Oscar because you know the all the cat you know, does the bouncer at the Vanity Fair Party really know that I didn't win best sound? Right? <laughs> Is he gonna check the brass plate on the Oscar? Yeah so, You've got a I, ticket for
0: life, man. That's a that's a life membership to any Oscar party as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um well I, I do hope that your sound team wins their justly deserved Oscar. I hope that Greyhound continues to find the largest audience that it possibly can. And I desperately hope one of our listeners find you a Forrest Gump Easter egg in yeah. in this movie and can report back to you.
2: And let me see if I can give a hint, because it's really hard. Let me see. Let me come up with a hint that we can we can uh leave them with. Um okay, here you go. Here's your hint. It has to do with the name of one of the men in Forrest Gump's Platoon.
0: Well, you heard it here first. Your hot tip. There is no prize going for the person that finds the answer to this riddle. But I will maybe I'll make a Spotify playlist of, of uh, nautical-themed tunes and call it Hank's Sea Jams, and you can get yourself a copy of that maybe. But we, we uh, hope you can use that mystery as an excuse to check out this incredible film again without me yammering over the top of it. Uh, it really is a fantastic movie and I can't thank you enough for coming to talk to us about it, Aaron.
2: Thanks, Grant. I enjoyed it. Thanks, mate.
1: Bye-bye. Well, thanks to Aaron and thanks to Tom and thanks to you, Grant. Oh, bless. Thanks to
0: you, Dave. And thanks to Tom Hanks and thanks to the listeners. And actually, genuinely, it's always hard to do the hard gear change. Thanks to the troops, you know? To like The life that we all get to lead now is, is, the, is completely the benefit of the sacrifices of people that are honoured in movies like this. So thanks to them as well.
1: Yes. Uh, and as, as with anything, if there's any person you'd like to go to war with, it would probably be Tom Hanks.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'd do anything for Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks for president. Tom Hanks could be my wife. Tom Hanks for, you know, whatever.
1: I'm down. Yeah, I'd, I'd just settle for you. You could be my, you know, cool uncle he does have a cool uncle vibe well I think that brings us to the end of this week's
0: show though so uh, also my chances of working with Tom Hanks gone oh they've just plummeted it's the end of
1: that yeah (laughs) well don't forget to send us a message with your Q&A questions feedback on the show or your answer for the challenge Aaron laid down to find the Easter egg mentioned during the commentary cast and let us know where can they find us Grant
0: at the commentary
1: cast and at is that you, Dave? Or you can find me at Grant Spittori. Well, that's it. That's our show. Thanks again to everyone. And until next time. Insert catchphrase here. Insert Tom Hanks here for a winning movie. <laughs>